to Strangely Enough. Today, we're covering different topics related to death and dying. Amelia is going to start us off by taking us through different Northeastern funeral traditions. Tosh will discuss the weight of souls experiment and auras paired with Rachel's personal experiences of visitation dreams. And I'll be capping it off with how the power of humor can help us get through the process of grieving. And without further ado, hi, Amelia. Hi. <laughs> How's okay. it going? Good. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm great. What do you got for us today? All right. So as it would turn out, there is a lot of information about New England death rituals because uh, white people history is really well documented. And um, who knew? So today <laughs> I'm going to go over um, some information about colonial New England. I did do some research into some native people's traditions, three specific tribes that are um, in what is now Maine, and then some really fun Victorian weird stuff that are just more fun facts than anything. Um, so colonial New England, um, some stats about people's survival rates. Half of the pilgrims died in their first winter in Massachusetts. Dope. Uh, one in 10 children died within their first year of life. And 40% of the entire peoples never reached adulthood. So lots of death and dying. So everybody came over here and died. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Cool, cool. Okay. <laughs> so uh, when the Puritans got here, they and, and started dying. Uh, they're like, oh, we got to do the funeral thing. Um, but they wanted to do everything in their power to move away from any of the like Catholic practices that they had in Europe. Um, so at Puritan funerals, there were no eulogies, no sermons. It was literally a silent affair, which is <laughs> creepier somehow than watching people's family cry about how much they missed the dead person. Um, <laughs> but it was silent. Um, if there were any verses or messages, uh, they were gathered and then published after the fact. Um, one interesting thing that I learned about was um, how they went about carrying the casket, the coffin or whatever, from the wakes to the cemetery for um, burial. So younger men, usually like stronger working class men, would be called underbearers. So they would be the actual people carrying the casket. And because of the length of distance that people had to walk with the casket to get it to the funeral home, uh, not funeral home, the cemetery usually, um, they had two groups of underbearers like on, on deck. So there would be like the six guys doing it. And if they got tired, six more working class guys would come take over for them. But what's interesting is when they were carrying the casket, they were called underbearers because the pallbearers were these men in the community that were distinguished and they probably owned fucking people and property or something stupid. And they carried a black cloth that spread over the length of the casket. So the, the underbearers, you literally could only see like their legs and stuff walking under the casket. And then the people just on the outside perimeter of the underbearers were the pallbearers with the fabric and had the whole queen's wave going on. 
that is the most classist thing I've heard in my damn life. Right? Like, oh, yeah, you do the grunt work, heavy lifting of poor George from down the road, and I'll just fucking catch bras like it's a goddamn rock concert. Honestly. It's <laughs> also giving me real strong um, Gilmore Girl vibes. I forget who dies. Oh, somebody really important dies. Maybe it's Fran from the bakery. Spoiler they- alert! <laughs> <laughs> Of the show that's been out for a stupid amount of time. It really has. But they, like, all the men, not even just all the men, like, a good amount of people, like, carry her around the, like, oval of the center of the town. And it's just, that's all I can picture right now. I'm sorry. No, that sounds similar to what it was. It's just, like, a lot of dirt roads and, like, yeah. I haven't seen that, but it sounds accurate. What's interesting, though, so, like, as sexist and classist as we all know the pilgrims were, I guess when a woman passed away, like, there would be distinguished distinguished women from the community that would lead the burial walk, like, the funeral walk to the cemetery. And if it was men, men would let um, head up the line. So at least they did that. <laughs> Girl power? All I want to, all I keep picturing is just like this casket with like basically like a black cloth over it with all these legs just like walking down the street and like <laughs> it's exactly know, like, like that. That's yeah. so spooky. Yeah, like, very spooky. I found um, like lithographs of like illustrations that people had made during that time to like demonstrate what they looked like and it was exactly like that it's like if you okay you guys know the scene in Mulan where all the Huns are under the dragon at the big parade at the end yes it's like that but oh, with yeah. dead people in black cloth <laughs> oh my god. like a goddamn right. millipede <laughs> well, Amelia is 100% gonna post those pictures yeah you call them? huh what did you call them they looked like they were just like lithographs like um mm-hmm. Like, because they didn't have cameras, so it was, like, a right. print. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's going to post those to the Strangely Enough Insta because everybody needs to see that. A hundred percent. For sure. Um, so, yeah. So, Puritans were wild. Who knew? Um, <laughs> apparently, too, it was, like, despite how frequent death came, it was, like, a whole community affair, which I guess really kind of makes sense now that I'm saying it out loud. Because, like, there was, like, a couple hundred of them. I don't know. Not a lot of people. So everyone came out. It was a to-do. Um, and then as far as like, so that was going on in the white people world. And I tried to dig a little bit into some of the native people's rituals, which to lump it together like that isn't the most sensitive way because each tribe had their own practices and beliefs and all of all of that. Um, but there were some kind of common themes amongst these three tribes. Um, so I really hope I'm not butchering one of these. It's the Montanese tribe, the Micmac tribe, and the Malicite tribe. Um, they existed at the time that these burial traditions were pulling from, that the author was pulling from, and I can always source information I researched, but, um, it's in what's now Maine, the state of Maine. Um, so lots of what I found were that, uh, if a man died, 
uh, from anything. They would kill his dog or dogs, and uh, they would wake the body. It's kind of similar, honestly, to like what we have as a wake now-ish. But they would wake the body, and then after the wake, they would have a huge feast where they ate the dogs, like the meat from the dogs, um, among a shit ton of other stuff, like a lot. It was a feast. So it was a big community thing. They would eat the feast. And then when they buried their um, the people, they didn't have them laying flat in a coffin. They actually like posed them in the fetal position and swathed them in pelts. So the idea there was that it's kind of like um, sitting crisscross applesauce, but with your knees pulled up to your face and your head kind of bowed down. And the reason for that was that um, children and like younger people sat like that to show honor to their fathers and the elders in the community. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm going home to the like the ultimate beyond. So they were swathed in pelts and then they were buried with literally all of their belongings. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to hang de- hang on to my granddad's favorite, I don't know, bow and arrow or tool or something like that. It was like, no, all of that shit goes in the ground with him. And um, they would, so they would dig the grave, kind of place the body sitting upright, but in the fetal position and kind of wrapped up in cloth with all his belongings and the dog carcass. And then they would arch um, sticks over the grave in a similar shape, which I thought was kind of cool to um, like the Great Pyramids. So it's like a a cone shape. Um, And then attached to all the different sticks, they would, so if it was a male, some common things they would attach to the sticks were um, shields, bows, um, arrowheads, things like that. And for women, they would put... um, wrapped together like spoons or jewels or precious stones that were part of the person's belongings that they wanted to use to kind of like decorate the grave. And it made me think a lot of like, you know, those like highway grave markers, which are really fucking morbid, but I get why they exist. It made me think of that (laughs) because like, look at all these earthly things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I feel like those are like some of the most decorated, you know, grave sites that you'll come across and, um, it's always eye-catching too. So it's like paying your respects, but also like drawing the, I guess, interest of others to come and do so also. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was a, so that kind of theme, I mean, burials exist amongst a lot of cultures, not all, but a lot of cultures. Um, so, but it was interesting because as I was reading up on this, I was like, yo, that reminds me like every time there's something scary, especially in New England, they're like, oh, the house was built on a Native American burial ground. And I was like, what is that bullshit? And I found a record of um, in 1903 in Truro, so on Cape Cod, on the face of a bank, like on the seashore, there was a dark line that was about several inches like deep. Um, and it was kind of eroded away by the weather. So the locals at the time excavated the dark line and they found that it was sawed. So it was dirt. And they found like little pieces of broken pottery, some charred bones, ashes, different pieces of cloth, um, like a couple of jars with like fine powders and pigments. So they actually like 
unknowingly, I think, I hope unknowingly, <laughs> uncovered a, a Native people bur- burial ground. So, like, it was just interesting to hear that that wasn't something that, like, people made up in the 70s because they wanted to wear, like, sterling silver jewelry and scare people because they're white. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, 100%. <laughs> but... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting that there was some truth to something like that happening, at least in the area. It wasn't just like a weird, like, ooh, be scared of the brown people. Yeah, definitely. It's nice to have that, have reason behind it instead of just like you said, like, we'll just scapegoat everything all the time. (laughs) Right. Um, But while you were talking about, like, their rituals, I think it, like, a lot of it was really interesting to me to hear about, like, how they sit them in the fetal position because, I mean, you think about the name fetal position, right? Why do we call it that? Is because when you're in the womb, that's the kind of position you're in. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it had something to do with, like, ushering them into, like, their next life. Um, That paired with killing the, the person's dogs and burying them with them maybe as like a guide into the next life mm-hmm. I'm so curious if that has anything at all to do with it um, yeah another thing I was thinking about all of that too it was like first my first thought was like it's a return to the womb it seems mm-hmm. like you know especially with the whole being swathed in like furs and whatnot like the comfort and the darkness and the warmth that it would provide um mm-hmm. but also how they were buried with like all of their belongings, because that just reminds me to like everything I've learned about like the ancient Egyptians in mm-hmm. like third grade, but like here we are, you know, on native land, not learning about, you know, their sacred rituals. And I know that the Egyptians thought like if they buried them with all of their belongings, that they would actually bring that with them to their next life. And I was actually just reading about this the other day. Like there was like, wives who would like make sure to go in and they would have like empty like literal like toilets in there and like maintain (laughs) the fucking plumbing you know in these like because they thought that you know spirits would need that as well so I'm just really curious to like where did that come from or if it was on like a similar wavelength yeah that's really interesting that sounds like either it was like solely for like okay when they get to the afterlife they're gonna need toilets or it's like, this is part of our grieving process is that we're here so long that we need a goddamn toilet. Right? Who knows? I don't know. It's strange. Yeah, it's everything that I researched, like, I just want to read more about. Like, there's just infinite amount of information. More so, I, I feel like there's, like I mentioned at the start, like, there's a ton of information about, like, colonial people's traditions and like wealthy Victorian age folk traditions so like I know that's like what most of the information out there is about and um I just want to read more about it but I also want to kind of read more into like different niche cultures and just anyone that wasn't loaded like what the hell they did for their dead people because they had to do something Yeah, I think that's really important to bring it full circle and not just focus on a very specific group of people. Um, Because like you said, like we all know, like being wealthy, being white, these things afford you the privilege to do things a certain way. Um, And I think it's a disservice to 
think it could be any other way and just assume it's like that for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's anything we're getting wrong in terms of native burials, like obviously we're only scratching the very service here. Mm-hmm. Um, if any of you out there listening have more information or have like good resources to point us in the direction to, this is stuff that we're like super interested in learning. Um, so definitely don't hesitate to reach out because we would love to hear about it. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, um, you said you found some like pretty interesting, like Victorian era, like fun facts. Yeah. Yeah. Fun facts about death. Um, yes. So kind of like building off of the fact that it was always a community event for funerals. So in Victorian times, it was really common to send a formal invitation to folks in the community for a funeral. And with the invitation, send a pair of gloves to each attendee. I wasn't Hmm. able to take the time to dig further into why gloves and they were usually leather, um, which beyond it being good for local tanneries businesses I don't know why it was leather as opposed to cloth or lace or anything like that um but that was something they did and then obviously I think you guys have all at least heard about different mourning jewelry so mourning rings with like either locks of hair or like imagery of like a coffin with a skeleton in it sometimes those were mailed out as well as gloves for like the giant bunch of people that were expected to be in mourning and available for the funeral services. Um, there was, what was it? So there was a priest, um, in Boston in Victorian times that he, uh, he counted all of the mourning rings he had, um, by the time he died. (laughs) He like was keeping track of them. And he had almost 3000 memorial rings from his lifetime of overseeing funeral processions and things and services. That is crazy. I had no idea about the fact, like, obviously I can understand like maybe uh, an invitation, like we still do these really formal invitations for things like weddings and things like that. But like, Mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense. You'd send like a formal invitation for a funeral, but like, the fact that they would incorporate like the, the hair and things like that for like all of these are is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard about like obviously like maybe the family or the widow or something like that, like having art done, um, utilizing like the hair of the deceased or something like that. And like actually having it made into like little floral bouquets and things like that. But I haven't heard mm-hmm. about it being used for like invitations too, which is wild. Mm-hmm. And I think now with <laughs> this was where my mind went when I was researching it. I was like, all right, so first of all, like how many people are you inviting? Cause if homeboy had a really short haircut, um, <laughs> you don't have a lot of hair to work with. And also who knows what they're going to do with that hair? Like what if there are serial killers out there and they didn't even have to work for that piece of hair and it's just creepy. Yeah, it is a little unsettling. Right? So, yeah, Victorian people times, (laughs) they went balls to the wall with funerals. Um, So I know I'd mentioned, I think actually in our last episode, if not definitely in speaking with you guys, um, that wakes were usually held in the home of the deceased. So um, before embalming became like a really big thing, 
Um, they would wake the individual in the parlor of the house um, for three or four days. So they pretty much constantly had uh, candles and flowers present, one to mask the smell because the body would start to decompose, um, but also uh, to, they they were awake, like someone stood watch over the body the whole time, which was why it was called awake. That's like one of the, the theories as to why it was called awake, um, which is creepy. And I actually asked my grandmother because uh, she has a long history of telling me morbid fun facts. And I was hanging out with her this weekend and I was like, hey, didn't you tell me like people's houses were like designed so that they could wake in the house? And she was like, oh, yeah. She told me about. So my grandmother's aunt uh, wed twice in her lifetime, never had any children. Her first husband died and her second husband ended up being this man who hired her on as a housekeeper whose wife passed away in the house that my family now owns. So that woman was actually waked in our front parlor, which is, you know, (laughs) it was so creepy. (laughs) Is is it horrible of me to say that's kind of amazing though? (laughs) No, I think it's awesome too. It's really interesting because like, so that, so the, my grandmother's great aunt is Aunt Babe. Her real name was Latern, um, which is a weird name. But anyway, she, uh, her, her second husband, she moved in because she was a housekeeper for them. His wife fell ill. And it's questioned as to whether or not their relationship began prior to the wife's passing or not. But what's crazy is that his wife passed in the house and eventually my aunt Babe passed in the house as well. So it's just really strange. That's wild. I actually like had that question too. Like as you were speaking, I was like wondering why do we call it awake or like why do we say like we're waking the person or what have you mm-hmm. but that makes a lot of sense and what the theory right yeah and i know it's tough because there are so many of those like oh th- this is why it's called a nutcracker I don't know I'm not making a good example anyway there's like multiple reasons on the internet but that one came up in my research and I was like oh that makes so much goddamn sense what made more sense was that once funeral homes became a thing and waking the individual in the in their home became less um, common they changed the common term for the parlor changed from the parlor to the living room because you were now being like the you weren't having dead people in there anymore (laughs) so that's where that came from no that's so good to know because I grew up with like either parent saying like either one and I'm always on like which one is it and like I used to I remember being like made fun of in like elementary school for saying parlor Right. I mean, go get (laughs) yes, that's such a thing in Massachusetts because my I remember like when I was really young, my mom would say parlor and then it eventually switched to a living room. It's kind of like that clicker and remote debate. But my friend um, in elementary school, her mom always said Paula. (laughs) Paula. Exactly. Like, oh, go, go in the Paula. Yeah. Go watch TV in the Paula. So that was pretty nuts. Um, Also during Victorian times, I found so... 
people would be waked for three or four days. And this is like pre-embalming because if you get embalmed, you're for sure dead. But <laughs> pre-embalming, you'd get waked for three or four days. And then um, the funeral professionals slash people in the community that had the stomach for it would like kind of prep you and you'd have like your funeral service in the church and then get marched to the to the cemetery. Um, but there was still some question as to like whether or not the individual could potentially be alive in the coffin. So sometimes what they would do is attach um, a, they would place a bell at the, at the headstone um, and attach it in a string or like a cord and attach it to like a finger on the body down in the ground in the casket. And the idea was if they woke up in there and they were like, holy shit, I'm still alive, they would move around and the bell would ring. So that's where the, the phrase saved by the bell came from. Yes, I do remember um, hearing about that when I think I probably did the uh, walking tour of the cemetery in Salem, Mass. Yes, there's definitely was one installed there. Right. And they also apparently would make like they would call them funeral biscuits. They were like crackers or cookies, basically, and they would wrap them in wax paper and then seal them with like a black seal. Um, and they would put them in the coffin with them. So that if they were to wake up <laughs> in the coffin because they were still alive, uh, holy fuck, they won't like starve to death. <laughs> you need just snacks. It's like so thought out. Thanks mm -hmm. for the biscuits. Get me out. <laughs> right. Thanks, you stupid bitch. I was just <laughs> asleep. <laughs> um, a couple oh, go ahead. No, I don't want to cut you off. <laughs> I was just, I'm realizing that I've been talking for a long time. So I just wanted to go over a couple of my favorite things, um, which Tosh, I know you've talked to us about like looking glasses and stuff like that before. And there were some other like traditions that I found that were really interesting, particularly in Victorian times. So the widow would often have to wear black for a year. Um, sometimes, usually when someone died in the house to demonstrate to the outside world that that occurred, people would tie their outside shutters shut with black ribbon. Some people went as far as to literally cover their whole house in a giant black cloth. Um, and then on the inside of the house, you would cover, you would, any family portraits, you would put them face down on a solid surface because the idea was if you had it up. Um, the soul of the deceased could look into the family portrait and take someone else from the family by seeing them in the portrait. Um, similarly, any sort of mirrors you had to cover with black cloth because um, they, the soul of the person could get trapped in the mirror if it was left alone. And when people were finished being waked um, and they were being removed from the house to be funeraled. Um, they always brought the people out of the house feet first because the concern was that if they went head first, the dead person could sit up and look into the house and take the soul of whoever they laid eyes on in the family. Wow. Imagine like just growing up around that time frame and being terrified of these things as your loving relative is being waked in your parlor. <laughs> right? You're like, your <laughs> grandma would really have it for me that bad. Damn. 
so yeah, that was kind of the, the gist of what I found. Also stopping the clock, all the clocks in the house at the time of death for the individual. Um, also, I thought this was the funniest thing I, I read. If after a burial you hear thunder, that's the sound of the soul making it to heaven and closing the door behind them, which I just can't imagine being like, I'm here, bitches, and just slamming a door like an asshole. Imagine. But yeah, that's kind of the gist of what I found. I'm probably going to just read more about this stuff to know it because uh, it's really weird and interesting. You have actually dug down like pretty deep. I'm impressed, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, I just learned so much. So I'm also so thankful. Oh, thanks. Um, but I yeah. feel like that's almost like a great transition too, because you were speaking about like how, you know, back then you'd have to wake the body and like, especially all the superstition attached to attach, like covering the mirrors and things like that. And, um, you know, just like kind of all of that, like, we don't want this soul to get trapped type of thing. Um, obviously Victorian era was like, I'm sure before this but like it I've been doing a lot of research on um this guy who's also kind of local Duncan MacDougall and um he basically was a pretty respected surgeon and physician in uh, in Massachusetts actually in the early 1900s and he um basically set out to prove that the human soul had mass and was something that was measurable, um, which I guess a lot of people have been trying to like, or have been like debating about. I was like reading a lot about how um, different people and scientists and doctors would think it's a certain uh, bone or something located either at the top or the base of your spine, or because if like a soul has mass, then it has to have an area within the body that it would actually take up. So they believe that, you know, if the soul existed, then it would be measurable at some point. So um, Duncan McDougall, this guy set out in uh, 1901 in uh, Dorchester, Massachusetts. He's actually from Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is right on the border of New Hampshire. But um, he basically went to a place where there were, you know, housing two tuberculosis patients. So they were kind of like just kind of housing them to kind of prevent further contamination of all this stuff. And um, he, I guess, against some people's wills, um, somehow got, you know, a certain number of people to sign off on the fact that like when you die, I'm going to do this experiment and it's non-invasive. Like basically what he would do is um, he'd pull you into the room when you're showing signs of like failure and for tuberculosis, I guess it could take anywhere from, you know, a couple hours to a couple days, depending on the situation. So he devised this like cot that was on a scale platform and the scale was like left over um, from a manufacturer of silk, um, but it was a Fairbanks scale. And apparently, you know, especially for the day, they were extremely uh, renowned for their uh, accuracy. So he devised this thing where he just like would basically put like an army style cot on it on and put this like dying person on it. And he had two other doctors like 
do this experiment with him uh, for six patients total. And he ended up producing this uh, research, I guess, that said that the human soul does have weight and it is equal to three quarters um, of, it's basically equal to three quarters of an ounce, which would be 21 grams. Um, so he like did this research and was like super excited about it. And like the whole thing about this guy though, is that he only did it on the six patients and in his studies, even in his published works, he ended up having to say that like a bunch of his, um, research had to be like thrown out because of people trying to stop him and stuff like that. Um, basically the first person was successful and the moment that his heart stopped beating the scale like went down exactly three quarters and he determined it was exactly 21 grams so of course he's super excited at that point um over the next literal like six years he does this and it's like one patient a year at that point um and the other ones didn't have as great of findings uh, only the first was the strongest example, and then um, basically all of the other others were compromised. So he was super controversial out there, but there were so many other people who actually went and like followed this and like tried to um, replicate it, but like not on humans because of how controversial it was. So there was also this guy uh, who did it. Well, actually, I should say that he went on after this got shut down and did it on uh, 15 dogs in 1917. So he did this like all by himself and he said that there was no change in the scale at all. Therefore, no yeah. dogs have souls. Exactly. F exactly. <laughs> 100%. I agree. He's like, okay, so these dogs don't change the weight. Like, so dogs don't have souls, but they, they probably have souls, but like, not like, soul eternal souls i think that was his like conclusion and i was like okay um but then so that was like only five years after that and then shortly after that there was another guy who did a um an experiment on 30 mice and he uh this was i gotta find his name because this guy was pretty controversial because he was not he like killed mice in like all sorts of ways which was ended up being like very controversial in and of itself but like to, he was like saying in his defense it was to see if it worked in any like number of ways but he found the same results as the dogs um saying that they there was no change so this has just been like a controversial thing for over a hundred years and at this point, there's, like, a couple people who are still looking into it, but, like, obviously can't find the funding to, to do stuff like this, because now we're realizing with, like, the advances in science that um, there's a whole lot of quantum physics involved, which was completely beyond me at that point. But, like, apparently we have good enough technology to measure, like, very, very small, you know, percentages of like an ounce and, and, and things like in grams and whatever. So it's like more possible now to do it. But like, who's to say, in my opinion, that souls have to have mass? Um, I don't know. You know, it's just like, there's all of these controversies surrounding, you know, when does the soul 
actually enter a fetus like a human when does it leave sometimes it takes longer and i think that one of uh duncan's experiments was like um one guy took 15 minutes to have a change in weight and like i should say that all of these things were accounted for like you know excrements or whatever upon death and like breath in the lungs and all of that was was at least considered but Nobody has looked into this further as far as scientific research goes. And I think that just goes to show like what a big gap there is between science and like, for lack of a better word, like the new age realm. That's like really interesting to me too, because it's not like it was like a varied amount of weight. It was always the same. And like, Granted, it was, you said the same scale every time and it was only six patients. Right, right. But what if she was allowed to continue? You know what I mean? Like people dedicate their bodies to science all the time. Um, and it's just strange to me, like that was the line for some people, I guess. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. He literally, he literally said like patient number six's data literally had to be thrown out because um, the scales were not finally adjusted and there was a good deal of interference by people opposed to our work. So he makes several references basically to like friction on the part of officials and basically is just like, oh, well, patient one was our ideal circumstances, but the rest, you know, had one thing or another interfering. So it was basically inconclusive, but also he was pretty conclusive at the time that he published his his findings. Um, I don't know. It's I'm just wild. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Like I would love for someone to pick this up again, just to see like if there's a group of people willing to be like, yeah, whatever. Like when I die, you can definitely take my body and be like, did I lose 21 grams? <laughs> that good, good. <laughs> 21 grams of that good, good went with me in the afterlife. <laughs> exactly 21 apparently there's like movies about 21 grams or whatever supposed to be about this soul stuff too i haven't heard of it but Mm. i'm bad at that i have a hard time with soul stuff because i can't i have a hard time because it's either for me like uh your soul is like a literal thing like what you see in movies it's like a mist that leaves your corpse when you're dead or it's just the electric like waves and stuff that happens in your brain like the firing of it it's like you're I don't know I can't I don't know if it's real I don't know it's interesting though for sure that's basically the whole controversy you know that's what quantum physicists are saying you know that it's like basically an information pocket of energy and then there's also like all of these accounts like ectoplasm and and auras Mm. and all these sorts of things where they're Mm -hmm. like oh it's a physical manifestation but I feel like that was more early on and now because of science everyone's kind of leaning more towards like it's it's energy like energy cannot be uh, created nor destroyed so where does it go you know there's that wow right But I don't know. So soul stuff is really interesting. And of course, there's so many facets of it. But at the same time, I feel like sometimes it does ring true. I mean, in just personal experiences, maybe like 
thinking that somebody is um, reaching out to you from the other side just after they're passing in a couple days, weeks, I feel like sometimes there's just unexplainable evidence that can like lead you to believing and really feeling that souls exist somehow beyond this living realm. Yeah, and I can speak to that a little bit as well. Um, I had a friend who passed away a few years ago in a drunk driving accident. And just to give a little bit of a backstory on that, the accident, it was him and two of his friends. Um, and when the accident happened, he passed away immediately. There was a person in the back seat who was critically injured. And then there, the driver was walked away without an injury at all. And this is someone that I had been close with since kindergarten or so, I will say. Um, and I knew the other two boys, too. They are all boys that I went to school with, at least from middle school and up. So I had a dream shortly after he passed away. And it's actually funny talking about it now. It started off that Natasha and I were walking through a museum and... <laughs> She had stayed back in a room and I walked into another room and he was sitting in a chair. And I had walked up to him and in my dream, I was very aware that he had passed away and so was he. So I ran up to him and I gave him a hug and, you know, I was kind of frantically saying to him, like, are you okay? Are you okay? Like, you died, you passed away. And he was like, I know, and I'm fine. And I was going through the motions, and at this time, in real time, there had been a lot of reports coming out on one of the kids' conditions, the one who got hurt. And this was a kid who, he was a hiker, he was a surfer, he was a very physical, active person. And the doctors were saying, if he lives, he's probably never going to be able to walk again. And the other person, the driver, at this point, we hadn't heard really if there would be any charges pressed. Um, so in the dream, I'm talking and I'm saying, you know, isn't okay. He's not going to make it. And says to me, no, is going to be just fine. But the other one isn't going to be okay. So the rest of the conversation isn't really important. And we end up walking out together. Natasha's in a car outside and I kiss him goodbye and I get in the car and we leave. Um, and I woke up the next morning and I it's something that's definitely stuck with me because it's the first time I had ever experienced something like that. And it was the first time I've ever had a dream about someone who had passed where I was aware that they were dead and so were they. It was almost like we were talking. Mm, and so it weird. was, yeah, and it, it was interesting because it's, it's something I, I wrote it down. I told people about it and whatnot. And, um, you know, now this is a few years later is 100% fine. He's walking, he has his own business, he's a woodworker. So it's just really interesting because, you know, it's not, it's, of course, there's no way to prove whether or not that was actually a visitation dream or if it's something that I was imagining, but considering he told me the outcome it's something, you know, moving forward that I was like, wow, maybe I really was connecting with his spirit. And that wasn't the first time either that I had a dream about him. I did have one later on, probably a few months later, where I had been on vacation in Florida, it started off completely random. And then 
I saw him and he had given me a letter and I was reading it out loud to my friends and he was standing next to me. But again, I was completely aware that he had passed away and I was also completely aware that I was the only one who could see him. No, none of my friends that were with me could see that he was standing with me. And I was just reading a letter about like childhood memories that we shared. Um, And they were like memories that I had almost forgotten about until I remembered them in the dream. So that was another interesting factor to it. And I had woken up the next morning and this is a picture that I can send to you guys and we can share it on the Instagram page. But um, I woke up and I had like a, a large handprint on my shoulder as if someone was holding onto my shoulder from behind. So it's not a way, it's not, it's not a position that had, you know, I was sleeping the whole night. I would not have been able to hold my own shoulder from that angle, you know, and, and God, it was a hand that looked a lot bigger than my hands too. God knows Rachel has little hands. So yes, I've got these tiny hands and it's just, it was, it was, I didn't notice it until I showered and, you know, I got out of the shower and I was touching, drying myself off and stuff. And that's when I noticed it. And I was like, wait a second. Oh my God. I just this... got the pills when you said that. <laughs> you know, because like sometimes you sleep a weird way and you get imprints and whatnot, but they fade rather quickly once you're up. But this yeah. was like, I was up for a little while. I showered and then I was like, wait, huh? That's not my hand. So I remember yeah. seeing the picture that you sent me after that, after that dream. And I was literally floored. Like the handprint was enormous, like the handprint of a full grown man and your hands barely meet like my second knuckle on. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God, I know there's no way like. Yeah, it was really interesting Um, just to add to that. So that's like the experience that I've had with it. And I've had other dreams where I've like connected or maybe thought that I was speaking to someone who passed, but it was never anything realistic like that. But I was talking with my mom earlier today and I was just telling her about this topic and, you know, that we were going to be talking about all these things tonight. And she told me a story that I've heard before about when my uncle had passed away um, back in the early nineties. And he was 18, I think when he passed away and on the night of his funeral, my sisters apparently both woke up at separate times, but they had the same exact dream where he appeared at the end of their bed, just kind of like apologizing that he had to leave and that it wasn't their fault and that he was always going to be watching them. And they had separate rooms at the time. And my mom just was recalling like the, how weird it was that they both woke up at separate times, but an almost word for word told the exact same dream on the night of his funeral. That's insane. And my mom actually had a similar experience where uh, the night that my grandfather died, he was in Maine and my mom was in Massachusetts. And um, she says that she woke up to him sitting on the foot of her bed and like felt the bed go down. And I don't remember if she said he said anything specific, but just that he was there. And then she found out that he had passed away. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that's... She had that before she found out he passed away? Wow, that's crazy. I feel like that's not uncommon, too. Like I I was saying, I feel like a lot of people have that kind of visitation experience soon after uh, somebody passes, or even before they know, too. And that's what makes it even more profound. 
I think the whole area of dreams and and especially like mediumship and communication is so interesting. And I can't wait to dive into that more, which I'm sure we're going to do in a further episode. Yeah, absolutely. I think dreams is like dreams are like one of the most interesting topics mm-hmm. because there's so many like branches of them like there's so many different ways to interpret them and like so many different signs you can take from them so I I do definitely see us kind of jumping into that and maybe doing I mean at least an episode if not more just because there's so much to talk about with it honestly I agree yeah it could go you know it could go in either direction with dreams People have dreams, premonition dreams, people have visitation dreams, mm-hmm. you know, lucid dreams. Lucid dreams. There's so many different topics to cover with dreams. So it would be really cool too to see if like any potential listeners have any stories to share on, on dreams for further research in an episode too. Yes. Agreed. Absolutely. Give me them goosebumps. Please, <laughs> Please tell us your dreams. I love that shit. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think like really nicely said guys, like I think that whole, like the weight experiment is so interesting. Like I, I wish there was more data on it. Um, and I myself, I've never, you know, been, I don't want to say lucky enough to have a visitation dream because I'm sure it's like a really obscure experience, but I just feel like that would be something that would like kind of solidify stuff for me a little bit more because while I have like a lot of like yeah that could be or I don't know I've never experienced it so I can't sit here and say it's not real like I think having a dream like that would really like lock it down for me a little bit you know (laughs) yeah I think that it did for me yeah definitely I think makes a difference um but yeah I guess without further ado I'll jump into my topic here um, about like humor and grief and kind of how they can kind of come together to help someone get through their grieving time. Um, so I kind of started off looking into like the psychology of death and dying and, you know, there's always the typical, um, like the five stages of, um, grief or, you know, acceptance, denial, all of that. And I just feel like that is a very old school thinking. Um, And as I did more research, I found kind of a a case being made for pairing humor with grief. Um, And a lot of what I was reading, like, for example, there was a study done at uh, Kent State University, And it reported in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Care that humor was presented in 85% of the 132 observed nurse-based visits. And what they found from that is that 70% of the humor was actually initiated by the patient themselves. Um, So it's, to me, like seeing something like that is, it's kind of like our inherent to want to kind of make light of a situation and kind of focus on the positives and instead of kind of dwelling on the sad parts of it. Um, And I got to thinking too is like we talked about funerals earlier, different funeral 
um, traditions and all of that. And I'm wondering if this is kind of a subconscious reason of how, of why we often have receptions after funerals to come together, to share laughs, to share memories, because we're subconsciously like trying to soothe ourselves after a traumatic event. Um, and I have just found that to be true in in the few cases that I have gone to funeral services is that like yes it's it's a sad time um particularly depending on how the person passed but being able to come together with friends and family and hear funny stories and crack jokes I mean it's it's soothing um yeah I I think that I would definitely agree with that like I haven't been to too many but that like reception part where like you're having just like cheese and crackers and like you get to actually mingle in like a casual way. I think it is, you know, there is usually, I mean, I guess it depends on the person, but like, and who is there too, but you know, it's just a great like relief to, from like that more formal setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed completely. Um, And when I think about like, when I pass, I, I would be so sad if everyone was just standing around crying the whole time and like not having like that, you know, you hear people quote the phrase celebration of life now, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, a funeral service or what have you. And like, truly, that's kind of what all of this research on, you know, humor and grief is saying is that you know, the people who do focus on learning to laugh again after a loss found that, um, like, their anxiety and their depression at 6, 12, and 24 months was drastically less than people who, you know, didn't try to get out there and to laugh again and to smile again and kind of find the lighter things in life, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um So yeah, lots of cases for that, you know, seeing that there is actual science behind, you know, laughter and humor and trying to find the joy of it. Um, And not even just in situations where people have passed and like dealing with grieving like a human life. Um, There's a lot of benefits of, of laughter that we can use throughout our whole lives. It is a stress relief. It strengthens the immune system, improves alertness. Um, increases endorphin levels, lowers blood pressure, increases the production of T-cells. And it actually, this was particularly interesting, I think, with dealing with grief, is that it helps the pituitary gland gland release its own pain-suppressing opioids um, and is categorized as a mature defense mechanism. So meaning it's something that, you know, people who have, you know, reached a certain mental capacity are able to use as a defense mechanism rather than, you know, maybe some other things that aren't as mature. Like, I'm not really sure what, like what the difference is, but that's what it's categorized. Um, I love that too. Um, and I didn't mention the specifics because I was on the spot when I was talking, but, um, the pituitary (laughs) gland was also an area thought by like, older day science um to be housing 
the soul because it was one of the only areas of the brain that didn't have like a twin like on either hemisphere but it's like technically I guess it it does release like melatonin like that type of calming um like effect that makes sense in what you're saying wow I want to know how much a pituitary gland weighs now ah good thinking yeah. <laughs> wild I love that that was great linking fantastic <laughs> um but yeah like I said I think the like in this specific instance where we're talking about grief um in a traditional sense of you know grieving the loss of somebody um in like a permanent way is that like that is a very extremely painful experience and everybody deals with it differently um but the fact that the pituitary gland releases its own pain suppressing opioids due to laughter is like a really big case of why, you know, using humor as a coping mechanism is a really positive thing. Um, and why there's so much research going into this. I mean, honestly, some of the stuff I found like goes as far up as like the Mayo Clinic, which is like a really reputable um hospital and clinic and research center so the fact that they're starting to incorporate it um just into their practices and kind of running like clinical trials I think is pretty amazing um and the way they're doing this is kind of by way of doing something called laughter yoga and laughter therapy um which uses humor to to get people in a more positive headspace and kind of look at their situation in a maybe not in a more positive life because I mean, trauma is trauma. It's hard stuff to go through either way, but just trying to be able to live in spite of that and find humor in life. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the basics of what I found. Um, I came across some interesting things as well <laughs> as I was researching. So for example, um, one thing I came across was something called the laughing death or Kuru, um, could be pronouncing that completely wrong. I apologize. Um, this is an incurable degenerative disorder in which people literally laugh themselves to death. Um, and it's linked to funerary cannibalism. So this is something that we're likely going to touch on later, but that was one weird thing that came up as I was researching. <laughs> um, and then there's this other type of laughter that comes from malice or envy, which I thought was really interesting. And I had never heard of that before. Like literally like laughing from a place of like from a bad place, like a, I guess a maniacal laugh, but it's like uh, the classic villain laugh. Yes. It's like, like it's a real <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I didn't know it had an actual name. So it's, I'm going to spell it because I have no idea how to pronounce it. Maybe photonic. P-H-T-O-N-I-C. Um, but yeah, I didn't know it had a legit name. So that was pretty interesting to me. Um, yeah, so I, you know, pretty short segment. Um, but I I thought it was interesting that there's kind of, again, kind of relating to like the new age, you know, progress of medicine and science. It's it's really refreshing to see it geared towards like the whole person of realizing that like 
no one person is the same and we can use different ways of coping to um to start the healing process which is you know long and arduous but if you can allow yourself to laugh it literally has like scientific health benefits for you and the people around you um I love that you know I think that's a beautiful place to end such a dark topic on too at least it can be dark sometimes but um you know laughter is key it is and I mean i you guys who know me know that I laugh all the time. I like my favorite thing. Um, and one of the quotes that really grabbed me that I, I wanted to end on was, remember, it doesn't take happiness to laugh. So it's okay if you're still feeling sad. It's okay if you're grieving the loss of someone that you loved. Um, you know, it's a complicated feeling to go through. You're going to feel happy. You're going to feel sad. But if you can get through it and, you know, laugh here and there, it's overall going to end you know, end up making you feel better and the person who you loved, you know, would want to see you feeling better, you know, and, and laughing and, and remembering things in a positive way. So remember, it doesn't take happiness to laugh. It's so true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, kind of a short segment, but I just thought it was too interesting not to touch on. Um, Oh yeah, that's it. That's my topic this week. Awesome. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Another good hour-long session. Thanks for sticking around. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> right. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you. I think that uh, this conversation will definitely bridge off into a lot more uh, different conversations that I'm super excited to have and thankful to anybody who's listening. Agreed. Amen. It's a good place to start. That's for sure. I was like researching stuff and I was like, this is all stuff we are going to talk about. more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, really, thanks for listening. Um, Again, if you made it this far, you are so appreciated. We're all still new at this, working out the kinks, but we're having a lot of fun doing it. Um, We are going to post all of our sources on our, either our website or our Instagram. Either way, we are keeping track of sources. So if you want to do some more research on the topic yourself, definitely we'll have a few good places for you to start. Um, And yeah, as always, thanks for listening and feel free to send in any feedback and uh, stay strange. Stay strange.